17 lawyers on retainer, and you managed to work it out so that in a free market, a so-called free country, I can't buy some shit-ass stock every other asshole can buy. Congratulations. You're destroying the capitalist system. While everybody else in the world is embracing it, my boys and girls are fucking it up. You know what happens when capitalism gets fucked up? The communists come back. They come out of the bushes. Don't kid yourself. They're waiting in there. But maybe that's not so bad. Because you know what happens when the commies take over? The first thing they do is shoot all the lawyers. And if they miss any of you, I'll do it myself. So just a couple of notes before we get into the second part of our Norman Jewison extravaganza. Firstly, I could have sworn that Jewison's film Other People's Money from 1991 is used in, well, some kind of documentary to illustrate the move towards neoliberalism and financialization in the global economy. And I thought that it was in this 2012 documentary in which Slavoj Žižek talks about movies and ideology within them called the pervert's guide to ideology but I combed through that film and other people's money is not in there so I thought maybe it's in an Adam Curtis film because he's done several that talk about neoliberalism and kind of like the psychology of neoliberalism and the ethos of neoliberalism and Danny DeVito has several very very illustrative speeches of that way of thinking in the film and that's where I first heard of the film in some kind of documentary but I have literally spent a bunch of time tonight skipping through three different Adam Curtis documentaries all of which are ones I'm certain that I've watched and the fucking other people's money clip was not in any of them so I am like completely at a loss as to <laughs> what the fuck film I saw it in so yeah sorry about that the other thing is that I deleted my copy of Jewison's final film The Statement starring Michael Caine as an escaped Nazi war criminal much more on that to come that copy that I downloaded did not have many seeds or whatever and I just tried to re-download it because I didn't fucking put it on my external hard drive before I deleted it. So I don't have any illustrative clips, there's none on YouTube because nobody likes the statement apart from me as you're here. So <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Some bits of the show are going to be more embellished than others but I hope you enjoy nonetheless. watching these movies like you've already said with Fiddler on the Roof we haven't all seen the same films like there's a couple of the ones you've seen I haven't seen but overall I really I, I enjoyed watching these movies there were bad moments there were good moments it was 
a real ride, you know? But I was never bored. I think... didn't get distracted by my phone easily, which I often do if I don't like a movie much. You know? <laughs> yeah, they're pretty entertaining, like, middle-brow fare, you know? Mm. Even though, like, like Jewison, I think there are re- recurring themes and stuff throughout his work. He's still kind of, like... He's not so much an auteur as the kind of director who, like, does a bit of this, a bit of that, you mm. know? So a journeyman, sort yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, so there's, like, something for everyone, really. Jewison, like, I think is uh, just, a, just a solid professional. Yes, definitely. Technically adept, competent at putting a movie together, putting a narrative together in a way that doesn't bore the audience or feel it obviously is highly constructed but it's that kind of hollywood highly constructed where it doesn't feel constructed there's a kind of like sydney lumet style naturalism to a lot of his stuff it's not like fussy and frilly and the stories are rarely that fantastical (laughs) jesus christ superstar yeah 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 that's true opposing the government and opposing the conservatives i'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control they want to uh, sideline moderate voices really anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the and of course we know that the hard left famously cannot any no, dissent. What, well, we know who the hard left is. Who associate with the hard left? You just said that we were right to right wing. The hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation without compensation. Hard left wing position. Hard left. It's the hard left. 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 The hard So he did this film called And Justice For All, which is a courtroom drama, so I haven't watched it. But that's got Pacino in it. 79, that's prime Pacino, he's probably good in it. Speaking of Jimmy Hoffa, then Best Friends, which is, uh, I don't know, a a romantic comedy, who cares? Then A Soldier Story, which I've not seen, but it's about a black military officer who is also a lawyer. So real, like, Sidney Poitier. (laughs) Territory. (laughs) Yeah. He's sent to investigate the murder of a black sergeant in Louisiana near the end of World War II. Jewison speaks quite warmly of this among his um, filmography. So, yeah, this is one I'm interested to watch. It features a supporting performance by a very young Denzel Washington, who would later go on to work with Jewison on the hurricane. Following a soldier story, he made a film called Agnes of God, which I watched last night. This is kind of novel amongst the Jewison films we've watched in that it is a very woman-focused film. In fact, it, I think, contains an all-women cast. There's maybe a male priest in it who has, like, one <laughs> line. There's a male journalist who has a couple of lines. But for the most part, it's about Jane Fonda playing this doctor who's investigating this kind of mysterious thing that happened where this nun, Sister Agnes, who's very young and innocent, had a baby and the baby died. Its umbilical cord was wrapped around its neck and it was put in a waste paper basket 
uh, and she was bleeding profusely. So there's basically all this kind of stuff of like who got her, all these mysteries. Where did the ble bleeding come from? Because it wasn't all like natural birth bleeding. How did the baby die? Who got her pregnant? Was it God? Etc. Etc. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a heavy like, was it a virgin birth kind of bit of speculation. <laughs> it's described as a neo noir drama mystery, and I wouldn't really say I don't. I don't think the neo noir particularly applies. I don't think this film is particularly heavy in mood in the way that in the heat of the night, I think, which isn't always described as a neo noir. I think it does apply to that. But I think this is a good film, actually, and it's a very engrossing and slightly strange plot, really. It's set in Quebec, mostly around this nunnery. Quite negative reviews, but I think maybe a bit, maybe a bit unfair. Jane Fonda, Anne Bancroft, Meg Tilly in the leads are all very good in it. I don't want to dwell on that too much, as you haven't seen it, and I was pretty baked when i watched it last night <laughs> trust me um yeah agnes of god quite a good film then again in terms of these brief synopsis before we get to another one that we've both seen there's this film called called um moonstruck not called norman jewish jewison <laughs> uh, norman jewison directed a film called norman jewison <laughs> norman jewison a day in the life of norman jewison yeah okay i have seen this film because this is the one where nicholas cage chops his own hand off by accident and so has a wooden prosthetic hand that's like the main thing i remembered about the film but it's like oh, a man, romantic... if i'd known Cher was in this i could have gotten m to watch this super easily <laughs> you, well, you should still you should still watch it we'll do a jewish and extra for patreon where I, where I talk about fiddler on the roof and you talk about this and in the heat of the night yeah it's pretty good man like it's yeah it's just like a funny rom-com with sure in an insane nicholas cage like this is one of his first like <laughs> hyper real performances if you know what i mean where he was yeah. really starting to push his interpretation of the role way ahead of what most kind of romantic leads would do in a regular old comedy film it's also got the great Danny Aiello in it. Yeah, good movie. Very well reviewed. Just a, a well-regarded comedy that I wish I'd rewatched. Nice. But I, it's been years since I saw it. I'm pretty sure there's like one of the classic Nicolas Cage freakouts in that Moonstruck film. So I'll try and get a clip of that. Oh, great. Yeah, definitely going to download that movie. Nothing is anybody's fault, but things happen. Look. This wood is fake. Five years ago, I was engaged to be married, and, uh, and Johnny came in here, and he ordered bread for me. And I said, oh, OK, some bread. <laughs> and, and I put my hand in the slicer, and it got caught because I wasn't paying attention. The slicer chewed off my hand. <laughs> it's funny, because when my fiance found out about it, when she found out that I had been maimed, she left me for another man. That's the bad blood between you and Johnny? Yes, that's it. Yeah, but I, that's not Johnny's fault. I don't care! I ain't no freaking monument to justice! I lost my hand! I lost my bride! Johnny has his hand! Johnny has his bride! You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away and forget? So should we talk about other people's money? Which is a film, I think I said to you, it's like, it's both really smart and like pretty dumb <laughs> so it's a funny film and it actually has some really insightful things to say but at the same time it's such a 
such so, apologies yeah but such an american conception of class <laughs> no i agree i agree and it is one of those i think it's most frustrating because it gets so much right yeah but then it misses so much i love money i love money more than i love the things it can buy does that surprise you money it don't care whether i'm good or not it don't care whether i snore or not it don't care which god i pray to there are only three things in this world with that kind of unconditional acceptance dogs donuts and money only money is better you know why because it don't make you fat and it don't poop all over the living room floor there's only one thing I like better. Other people's money. It's basically about Danny DeVito as 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 this kind of like absolutely Gordon paras- Gecko or something. Yeah, this completely parasitic capitalist. He has a computerized stock analyzing program called Carmen. And he, he's basically always looking for these little companies that you can So what does he do? He looks for companies, I guess, that are with the term be undervalued, like their yeah. stocks are not worth as much as their assets. And he buys mm. them out, sells all their assets, makes a profit. Strip mines companies, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, much yeah. like Danny DeVito's character in Always Sunny did when he was a businessman. Just oh, like... yeah, that's true. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I'm sure that's a reference. You know, I, I bet they... <laughs> it's I gotta be, they, right? I'm pretty sure they would have worked some of the character from this film into his Always Sunny Well, they Sunny also, character. yeah, one episode of Always Sunny references One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which Danny was in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, well, you know, he's a venerable actor. He's been in a lot of stuff. I'm sure they want to get in some references to some of his past work. This film, yeah, so he just does these kind of corporate takeovers of little companies, flogs them off and leaves everyone who works, you know, fuck the workers. He'll make a profit at the expense of everybody else. Yeah. Um, he calls himself Robin Hood, stealing from the rich to give to the upper middle class. <laughs> yeah, again, like, what the fuck? This only got 31% I, I on Rotten did not tomatoes. fully understand that, but yeah. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, wow. sorry. What what, we, what were you saying, Meg? I got distracted by the... Oh, it was just a quote reading. from him that I didn't really what? fully get. He said that what? he steals from the rich to give to the upper middle class. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah. again, very American. The upper middle class. Like, isn't that just the rich? I mean, pretty like, much. <laughs> like, there's the super rich, yeah, but the upper, <laughs> uh, the upper middle class is like very well-off people. I don't know. Oh, if no, I'm not rich. I just own my own home and I have a speedboat. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I'm not rich. It's completely skewed in America because if the working class and the middle class in America, but I have no idea what anyone else is over there. It just doesn't make any sense. To me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like always helping out middle class people and like the middle class person is like some part of it is because it doesn't really exist. You, you either do have a lot of money or you don't. You got enough money that you're comfortable or you don't. You're rich or you're poor. I don't know. There is the instrument of our destruction. I want you to look at him in all of his glory. Larry the liquidator. The entrepreneur of post-industrial America playing God with other people's money. The robber barons of old at least left something tangible in their wake. A coal mine, a railroad, banks. This man leaves nothing. 
He creates nothing. He builds nothing. He runs nothing. And in his wake lies nothing but a blizzard of paper to cover the pain. Oh, if he said, I know how to run your business better than you, that would be something worth talking about. But he's not saying that. He's saying, I'm going to kill you because at this particular moment in time, you're worth more dead than alive. God save us if we vote to take his paltry few dollars and run. God save this country if that is truly the wave of the future. We will then have become a nation that makes nothing but hamburgers, creates nothing but lawyers, and sells nothing but tax shelters. Yeah, so the strange thing about this film, what I was saying about it having such an American conception of class, is that Gregory Peck, who is obviously like, you know, an even more venerable actor than Danny DeVito, mm. you know, a great, great person who for decades was in so many iconic roles in so many yeah. films. Although, unfortunately, <laughs> the film that I had probably seen him in that came out most closely to other people's money was The Boys from Brazil, in which he plays (laughs) Joseph Mengele. So, like, Uh, one of the the quote-unquote sympathetic characters in this film, I was just thinking of it, is Joseph (laughs) Mengele, the the fucking butcher (laughs) this entire time. You know what? Same. Exactly the same here, yeah. (laughs) That's the last film I saw with him in. If it was a film from, like, the 50s or 60s, and he looked like Atticus Finch, then it wouldn't have have crossed my mind. But if a fact is that in 1978 he did the boys from brazil and he looked quite similar 13 years later (laughs) but anyway the american conception of class that i keep almost getting to is that (laughs) so he's like this business owner and they casually mention earlier on in the film that he's like a millionaire and he owns the business and the workers well we don't really get we don't get to meet any of them. We, we yeah. basically we're you hear about for. the workers, but you don't. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and he's talking about their interests, so we can get from this that he's like he's the proper boss who, uh, you know, he treats his work as well. But yeah. he's still a boss. The workers are still just parts of and, his company. And if we are at that point in this country where we kill something because at the moment it's worth more dead than alive. Well, take a look around. Look at your neighbor. Look at your neighbor. You won't kill him, will you? No. It's called murder, and it's illegal. Well, this, too, is murder on a mass scale. Only on Wall Street, they call it maximizing shareholder value. And they call it legal. And they substitute dollar bills where a conscience should be. Damn it! A business is worth more than the price of its stock. It's the place where we earn our living, where we meet our friends, dream our dreams. It is in every sense the very fabric that binds our society together. So let us now at this meeting say to every Garfield in the land, here we build things we don't destroy them here we care about more than the price of our stock here 
We care about people. But just kind of jumping off on that point, early on, is it his daughter, the, the lawyer, uh, who mentions that if they just took out a loan, they could buy all the shares they needed and protect the company and it would all be fine for the workers. And he's just like, but this company hasn't had debt in since the Depression. And we, oh, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, you hear that stuff and you're like, okay, this guy is like stupid and deluded. Yeah. <laughs> and he's exactly. a bad businessman. He's, he's not, bad. He does not sound in touch with his employees there. He, yeah, yeah, and also he's bad at capitalism. If you're going to play the market <laughs> with, with those That's kind of fine. stupid ideas, it's a ideas, part of capitalism. Yeah. You're going to get fucked. yeah no you're totally right (laughs) similarly they end up contradicting this with danny devito's turn at the end but his character actually says something which i thought was very astute early on as long as capitalism exists people like him are gonna exist you want to play the game learn to play it right oh is that what you call it a game you're damn right the best game in the world. I'll teach you. It's easy. You make as much as you can for as long as you can. And then what? And then what? Whoever has the most when he dies wins. Look, it's the American way. I'm doing my job. I'm a capitalist. I'm simply following the law of free enterprise. What law is that? Survival of the fittest. What was the deal with the ending, though? Because I can understand that prior to the 80s and the birth of this especially rapacious kind of Reaganite capitalism represented by DeVito in this film, which I think is very on point and is something that really did happen, there was an emergence of a new, much more rapacious, venal, parasitic kind of capitalism. And it's true that in the 70s, business and labour, the workers and the bosses, had a better settlement that in many ways worked for both of them to some extent whilst we may have our own differences with the system as a whole but the ending of this film is fucking preposterous because it implies that a settlement could be reached between labor capital in the form of the bosses and financial capital (laughs) that just that just exists to buy up some place and sell it off it was semi-realistic in that danny devito is head over heels for Penelope Ann Miller and has something to gain. Oh, uh, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, but she's not going to shag him. She clearly has no Why interest. Why would she? Yeah, he's... Yeah. Well, I mean, not that Danny DeVito isn't a beautiful man, but but I mean, just that he's a, he's a repugnant he's individual. as an individual. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a very handsome guy. Movie star good looks, but just appalling. Classic looks, yeah. <laughs> but just an appalling person. I thought that the relationship between the two of them was a little bit rom commy for my taste but i then mm. I, I did feel they kind of portray her character as like overtly sexy and seductive but i don't think they would necessarily do to a female lead today in such a film yeah. you know what i mean oh there um, was definitely something problematic about the gender politics of the movie but then at the end he still hasn't kissed her he no. wants to no, <laughs> he's still just doing the same desperate shit of like at most up. it's only implied that maybe there's a chance they'll get together yeah i feel like she's just stringing him along uh, yeah. and he's just doing the same pathetic shit like calling up his pedicurist and stuff like you know because yeah. <laughs> she's <laughs> gonna be like taking a good long look at his feet (laughs) but i don't think she is that's the point basically so that kind of that kind of stuff i felt was really dumb but not quite as dumb as 
the bizarre way that she comes up with this crackpot scheme at the end where they're just gonna like retrain all their <laughs> workers and it's just literally like right. this like thing liberals say now where it's like well those donald trump voters in the deindustrialized states you know they just need to learn to code <laughs> right yeah at least in her vision it was like the company is going to retrain its workers and not lay them off and force them to do it on their own dime but yeah. then danny devito's character wouldn't go along with this yeah he's still like what's in it for me airbags airbags every car in america is about to have one did you know that airbags are made from stainless steel wire cloth did you dump bart the Mitsushimi Company of Japan is ready to make a long-term deal with New England Wire and Cable for the production of airbags. I love the sound of your voice. Well, here comes the best part, Lawrence. You sell wire and cable back to the employees. They modernize and re-equip the plant and turn out airbags. What's in it for me? They'll pay 28 bucks a share. You like? They'll go to 30. Even right yeah. at the end, after his... But I guess he is, a, he is a sad, lonely man who's head, yeah. up, head over heels with a much younger, attractive woman. So there is that element. I mean, like, yeah, this is the point that Penelope Ann Miller's character earlier on makes an offer to Danny. I can't remember which. There's a couple times that she makes an offer, but she makes an offer for the business. What does it take to buy you out? We'll give you more money than most people earn in a lifetime. I'm pretty sure that's the phrase she uses. To which Danny says simply, it's not enough. Yeah, I love that. There's some really good articulation. It really fits into that rapaciousness you were speaking of. If the I need more money than I can possibly use, please. Yeah, Thank you. like these Wall Street cowboys, you know. And real... quite significantly, as much as the characters do kind of grow, like at the end, that, that philosophy hasn't changed. He's still no. clearly, what's in it for me? I want the money, you know. Like, maybe he's one percent less greedy i don't know how we're supposed to read that ending like he seems slightly amenable to other people's ideas as long as he's making money he's not just an idiot i don't get it i don't get it but yeah this <laughs> film ultimately it does seem like a lament for a more decent capitalism yes. which i think a lot of people on the liberal side of the political spectrum were beginning to feel after the reagan era not that they're chosen president of the 90s did anything about it in fact he made it worse with his reforms <laughs> abolishing yeah. the glass steagall act and so on but i do think it is kind of this poignant remembrance of the old american capitalism where you had self-made men like gregory peck who have not not an ounce of debt you know just give these good people <laughs> his workers own shares in the company which is a i thought an interesting thing that's yeah. very much very much like german style social liberalism there. I think that was a Labour yeah. policy at the last two elections in the UK. Very interesting film. But I should say that we've criticised the politics of it, but it is I think it is actually very funny. Yeah, it's a good comedy and it has its moments, politically speaking. So <laughs> I recommend it as a movie, 100%. I'd give it a solid three stars. What would you give it? I gave it three and a half. I think it's a seven out of ten movie. I mean, you know, you don't frankly get that many movies even lamenting a better capitalism. Even if the prayers were answered and a miracle occurred 
and the yen did this and the dollar did that and the infrastructure did the other thing, we would still be dead. You know why? Fiber optics, new technologies, obsolescence. We're dead all right, we're just not broke. And do you know the surest way to go broke? Keep getting an increasing share of a shrinking market. Down the tubes, slow but sure. You know, at one time, there must have been dozens of companies making buggy whips. And I'll bet the last company around was the one that made the best goddamn buggy whip you ever saw. Now, how would you have liked to have been a stockholder in that company? You invested in a business, and this business is dead. Let's have the intelligence, let's have the decency to sign the death certificate, collect the insurance, and invest in something with a future. Ah, but we can't, goes the prayer. We can't, because we have a responsibility. A responsibility to our employees, to our community. What will happen to them? I got two words for that. Who cares? You don't often get many movies that take on the move towards financialization and neoliberalism in any form. And if you can make it quite funny, then, you know, I don't expect great shit. To be honest, yeah. like I was pleasantly entertained by this movie, if not necessarily surprised. And I'd recommend watching it as a double bill with another film starring Danny DeVito, which came out in 1986. It's called Ruthless People. And it's where mm. Danny DeVito plays a really disgusting piece of shit millionaire who... Uh, <laughs> plans to have his wife murdered to gain control of her family fortune it's directed by abram zucker and zucker and, oh. and, and i imagine david s zucker was able to really provide the guys with the inside track on the reaganite mindset you know <laughs> <laughs> right. so uh, i'd uh, so i'd recommend watching ruthless people which is a funny and nasty film uh, and uh, again yeah. quite no, this one actually has very good reviews, unlike other people's money. But these, I felt that that was of a piece, and it's almost like there's a continuum of Danny DeVito characters from ruthless people to other people's money to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Just real <laughs> yeah. swashbuckling financial criminals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got a certain type of character, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Care about them? Why? They didn't care about you. They sucked you dry. You have no responsibility to them. For the last 10 years, this company bled your money. Did this community ever say, we know times are tough. We'll lower taxes, reduce water and sewer. Check it out. You're paying twice what you did 10 years ago. And our devoted employees who have taken no increases for the past three years are still making twice what they made 10 years ago. And our stock, one-sixth what it was 10 years ago. Who cares? I'll tell you, me. I'm not your best friend. I'm your only friend. I don't make anything. I'm making you money. 
And lest we forget, that's the only reason any of you became stockholders in the first place. You want to make money. You don't care if they manufacture wire and cable, fry chicken, or grow tangerines. <laughs> you want to make money. I'm the only friend you've got. I'm making you money. Take the money. Invest it somewhere else. Maybe, maybe you'll get lucky and it'll be used productively. And if it is, you'll create new jobs and provide a service for the economy. And God forbid, even make a few bucks for yourselves. <laughs> and if anybody asks, tell them you gave it the plant. <laughs> and by the way, it pleases me that I'm called Larry the Liquidator. You know why, fellow stockholders? Because at my funeral, you'll leave with a smile on your face and a few bucks in your pocket. Now that's a funeral worth having. Am I right in saying that the final two films in our Jewish and Spectacular only I've seen? That's right. I do plan on capturing the statement, but I mean, you, you didn't care for the hard can that much? I didn't so much. I mean, I knew the story anyway, because this film, its account of the murder that Reuben Hurricane Carter was convicted of and of his subsequent imprisonment, racially motivated railroading by an all-white jury and so on. Um, it's all in Bob Dylan's eight-minute epic, Hurricane. People have said, oh, Hurricane's sloppy with the facts. Well, Norman Jewison clearly concurred with Bob's account of the story. <laughs> no, I mean, so Hurricane, Ruben, the Hurricane Carter, who was a boxer, who he wasn't actually the number one contender for the middleweight crown, as Bob Dylan famously sang. But on that fateful night in Patterson, New Jersey, it's probably true that he did have no idea what kind of shit was about to go down. But I've got no real opinion on whether Hurricane did the crime or not. What seems to be absolutely the case, in fact, was the reason that he was in the 90s released from prison. Maybe a bit earlier, I'm not sure. 1985 was that there was clearly a racial bias to the manner in which he was prosecuted. And that, I think, is the best part of the film, is that it shows, essentially, the racism of the police, mm. and it, it returns to the kind of attitude seen in, in The Heat of the Night, in this brutal kind of railroading they do to him. So, whether or not, I mean, I know some, I listened to a podcast about the Hurricane case, and this guy interviewed on it, the son of one of the people who was killed in the triple murder in that bar in Patterson, and he said, you know, if I ever see Bob Dylan, I'm going to punch him in the fucking face. And I'm like, well, <laughs> luckily for Bob, not many people get to have face-to-face -face meetings with him, um, <laughs> but clearly there are some people out there who feel that the Hurricane should not have been released from prison, but the fact that he was a victim of institutional and of individual racism from various people is undeniable and was found legally to be the case. The problem is really that once the hurricane is in prison in the film, the focus becomes too much on these sort of played out legal drama tropes. In Washington, right. Denzel Washington, I said earlier, he's like the most charismatic man in the world. He's magnificent <laughs> in the hurricane. He's great losing his mind in solitary confinement, working out ways to regain his sanity once he gets into his regular prison cell. You know, it's a really strong, basically flawless performance. But the inspirational slash 
unutterably bleak prison story can fall into a series of kind of tropes. Same with legal stories about getting the truth. I think courtroom drama, even though there's not that much of Hurricane set in a courtroom, but legal legal dramas, I'll say, can be like one of the most played out, tedious, trope-filled genres, I think. It's extremely formulaic by necessity. What, because there's process to legal it, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying, I'm sure a really creative filmmaker could do something very interesting with the genre, and I'm sure it has been done. Yeah, it definitely has, yeah. But, yeah, it's very easy to just fall into a formula of, like, this is what a trial is supposed to be like, and that's how it goes. I found that when I was watching in second year, I had that big, uh, I wrote the essay on City Lament, and I watched loads of his films. Then recently I tried to, like, fill in some of the gaps and watch the ones that I didn't watch back then. And I found that I like, I really enjoyed all his dramas about the police and about police corruption. But yeah. when they got into the courtroom or in his films exclusively about like legal stuff, he kind of mm. he kind of lost me a bit. You know, it's very hard. Even most Lumet was better at it than most. Did Lumet do Twelve Angry Men? Oh well, of course that was when he did it very well. You know, that was yeah. a, a, a case <laughs> of. Uh, that was before a lot of the tropes were played out and stuff, and he managed he to leave new life into it, really. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Bucking the trend and just focusing on a microcosm, in a way. But, I mean, that was 1957, and then you, you go forward a few years to some of the Mets yeah. courtroom dramas from the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and there's some of his weaker films from that period in a lot of cases. But the police ones, like I say, are fucking universal. Pretty great, I think, apart from the one where the cop goes undercover in the Orthodox Jewish community. That one was pretty shit, actually. What was the name of that one? A Stranger Among Us. It's one of the very rare Lumet films that actually deals in some way with Jewishness, because he was Jewish, but he made maybe three films that incorporate kind of Jewish themes and some heavy right. There's like Bye Bye Braverman in 68, which is about a kind of a bunch of like never she New York Jewish intellectual bohemian types, which is like super obscure. I've never been able to get hold of it. And then there's The Pawnbroker from 64, which is about, well, a pawnbroker by Rod Steiger, Norman <laughs> Jewison's closest actor collaborator. Great performance. He's uh, kind of very bitter and kind of on the surface he seems quite nasty, but it's all because of how he's been kind of traumatized by his experiences in World War II. And then there's pretty much nothing that deals with anything particularly Jewish for about 30 years until A Stranger Among Us in 92, which was not very good, unfortunately. <laughs> Definitely not as good as The Pawnbroker, which is terrific. What it basically comes down to is I have no idea how much... Uh, <laughs> no, apparently this is a real person. The film is in part about how Ruben Carter started a correspondence with this young black boy called Lesra Martin. Eventually this boy and a sort of like gang of like white Canadian bohemians who'd adopted him. It's a very strange situation. You've got to see the film to understand. Okay, yeah. They all helped him campaign to get Hurricane Free. And there's some interesting stuff there like when they are threatened by police who don't want them putting egg yeah. on the police force's face.
face, but it still falls into that kind of, you know, inspirational legal drama trap, you know, the fight for justice, uh, these heroic people doggedly pursuing this case. The fact that one of them is black makes it slightly less white saviory. Um, <laughs> although there are some quite tedious scenes where he has to, like, learn to get on with the white Canadians and stuff. Maybe it was different with celebrities, but there are accounts of Hurricane having no such problems being friendly to Bob Dylan, for example. <laughs> but, but I mean, yeah, it's an interesting film, and you've got some great actors like Dan Hed... Hed... I can't pronounce his name. Hedia and Vincent Pastore from The Sopranos uh, as Alfred Bello, another character mentioned frequently in the Bob Dylan song. But let's move past the hurricane, anyway, because it's an overlong film. Maybe that's just why it's just... I mean, it's, it sounded not awful. Like, I it's not, would check it's not it out awful. someday. Just for the performance, if nothing else. Absolutely, I mean, Denzel Washington. There's absolutely nothing wrong with what he does in that film. Right on, right on. Yes, that's the story of the hurricane. But it won't be over till they clear his name. And give him back the time he's done. Put in a prison cell, but one time. He could have been the champion of the world. Finally... And this is really finally, because this is Jewison's final film as a director. When he's... he retired, he retired. Yeah, Not like thankfully. these people today. <laughs> yeah, I think he still does a bit of stuff with the Canadian Film Centre. Because he, he's explained this. He'd say people would come up to him and ask him, Oh, Norman, why does Australia have a film industry like Canada doesn't? And he'd be like, well, it's because they've got an institute that funds uh, and promotes homegrown Australian cinema. So I think he set up the Canadian Film Centre, the CFC in Toronto, with collaboration from various other people in the Canadian film industry. So although he set that up in 1986, I think most of the times that he will have been present in the culture to any extent post-2003 would have been in the context of his work with the Canadian Film Centre. But yeah, you're right, he, he retired for good. And the man is 94 years old and still alive, quite possibly because he's, he's enjoying just, it. Yeah, yeah, he's just taken it easy and not worked himself to an early grave. <laughs> Although, to be fair, he was still working when he was pretty elderly. 2003, yeah. he was almost 80. It was in his late 70s <laughs> when he made the statement. So this is a film that I watched last night and it stars Michael Caine as an escaped Nazi war criminal. So... Generally, I, I like a good escape Nazi war criminal film, so I sought this one out because also it's just a thing of like, <laughs> Michael Caine, Michael Caine, Nazi war criminal. You're um, only supposed to blow the bloody doors off, etc, etc. <laughs> exactly. I, I thought it was interesting. I was like, is he going to do an accent? Because he's like, <laughs> he's meant to be fucking French in it. He's meant to have been like a <laughs> collaborator. But no, he doesn't do an accent. It's a weird film because like there's a couple of people in it who do accents. And then you've got a couple of people doing French accents. And I'm pretty sure one of them I've seen before in American films. And then you've got Charlotte Rampling, who is French, sounds basically... Oh, no, she's not. She's English. <laughs> okay, never mind. I was like, she sounds basically English in this, but there you go. She's just she's doing it in her own accent. But she does speak French, Charlotte Rampling, and she does do some French films. you got Tilda Swinton, as well as various people speaking in French accents, so it's one of those strange European films where everyone just does their own Does voice. their thing. Yeah. 
But, you know, I thought this film was good, actually. I listened to this podcast, which was seemed strangely incredulous at the idea that somebody who had committed terrible crimes might hold out a vain hope that this is something of which they may one day be forgiven. And also that other people may be complicit in giving them some kind of forgiveness <laughs> right. along the way. Specifically, the podcast I listened to on it, they seem to object to the fact that Kane's character, this escaped Nazi who we see killing somebody, a hitman, who he believes is, is a Jew, at the start of the film, goes from Catholic church to Catholic church throughout France getting sheltered and helped. But... <laughs> That, that's rather the point of the film, yeah. I thought. <laughs> the fact that these Catholic priests do grant him forgiveness and absolution felt to me like the enabling of a delusion. That was my interpretation yeah. of it. Have they never heard of the rat lines? These people, uh, again, I'm not just going to keep criticizing his podcast. I can't even <laughs> yeah. remember the name of. But the people in it were like, oh, if this guy thinks that he can be forgiven just by the Catholic Church without going to prison, how mad is that? And I'm like, <laughs> again. Why does prison make it different than. Uh, yeah. The that... point of the film, I believe, is that he believes that he tells himself that somehow he can make amends for what he's done without suffering the legally stipulated consequences for it, effectively. Right, right. That's the thing. The fact that despite claiming to be utterly repentant, he still doesn't think that he belongs in custody. He thinks yeah. that his supposed he moral punishment repentance is enough and that's why i didn't find this film to be a problematically sympathetic portrait of a nazi collaborator because i didn't see it that way at all i thought it was entirely about this complete delusion that what he'd done could ever be compensated for by his confessions at church and the fact that there was an institutional enabling of this delusion well not just of the delusion itself but giving him the means to continue living life as a free man and not being punished yeah i wouldn't expect a, a nazi to be repentant in and of themselves i wouldn't expect them to think they deserve punishment and the catholic church is famous for absolving people of horrible things and hiding their crimes yeah that's yeah, like absolutely. their thing <laughs> and this is all about that it's very interesting that this came out i think only a year after costa gavris's amen because mm. these films are both deep into the collaboration of the catholic church and nazis and you know i think there's a real usefulness to films like the Statement, this film by Jewison, or even the Odessa file, maybe less so the boys from Brazil, in showing that the Third Reich did continue in some diffuse form after their defeat at the end of the Second World War. There were still forms that this political yeah. th that this political tradition took, including a kind of network throughout Europe and much of the rest of the world to enable these people to continue to live. And unfortunately, one part of that network was the Catholic Church. And it comes from there being, you know, real political divisions in the church between its more conservative and liberal traditions uh, what's fascinating or what i found very funny actually is this bit in the film 
where Charlotte Rampling is his ex-wife. He, like, sold all her family out to the Nazis or something. It's real, like, just... He, he seems like just a complete piece of shit, this guy. And he basically blackmails her into letting him share her bed by threatening to kill her dog. It's just pretty horrible. And then she, for some reason, when he wakes up in the middle of the night with PTSD nightmares about how he murdered all these Jews, she, like, comforts him. Just, like, let him squirm. So that was maybe the one bit I agreed with the podcast guy on but earlier on there's this bit where he's like complaining about how he can't even go to mass because he'll be identified as a nazi war criminal and charlotte rampling's just like oh pull the other one you don't go to mass because you can't stand kneeling next to black people and being spoken to by the fathers in a language other than latin and kane just goes left-wing priests have ruined our religion (laughs) (laughs) just like something gapes would say in gape cast where just like, did you know they're letting women join the clergy now, Mike? Left-wing priests have ruined our religion! (laughs) (laughs) It is kind of a film about how the Nazis get away with things. I mean, so there is a strange element to it, which is there's a conspiracy, which is like a group called the Chevalier or something, and they don't really elaborate on what this is at all. So it's it's all a bit confused. But essentially, I figured that the conspiracy was still essentially fascist in nature. I may have misread the film, but I thought that the idea was the remnants of fascism had embedded themselves in France's established order, which uh, did happen, actually, to some extent after World War Two in France and other mm. countries. What I figured was... Uh, so at the end, these guys who he appears to know claim that they've got a passport for Michael Caine, so they meet him and they take him out the back of his cafe and shoot him. Wikipedia confirms my reading of the film was correct, and once again, the guys in that podcast I listened to completely missed the point that the people protecting him were in the government, and the idea is that fascists are still an integral part of society, they just keep it under locks, which is again, I maintain this is a good film that made good points. So what I figured was that it is in the interests of this fascist conspiracy to maintain a fascist element in society, be that protecting their own influential members or basically fugitives but maybe you know some of those people might outlive their usefulness and at a certain point (laughs) does it benefit the fourth reich to have some guy on the run who could tell people about the network and its elements within french civil society no it doesn't really you probably would shoot him so again whoever says that's a cop out against the fascists doesn't understand how conspiracies work, man. <laughs> exactly. It's not like he. It's not like he was a heroic whistleblower. It's like if <laughs> they, if a, if a French had arrested him, the well, only like he'd he just be a narc. Yeah. yeah, he just tells him to try and save his ass. Oh yeah, and the Nazi kills him and like blames it on some Jews. He's just like, oh yeah, that, that's the other bit. After he kills the guy at the start of the film, there's like two layers to his defense of himself when he goes to the confession booth. He's like, father, 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 listen. And the priest's like, what did you do, my son? He's like, I killed someone, I didn't mean to. And he's just, uh, he's like, I had to, I had to. And the father's like, who did you kill, son? He's like, and he just blurs out like he was a jew as if like that makes it okay <laughs> uh, and then and and then he kind of clarifies 
oh, I had to kill him. It was self-defense. But the first thing he goes to is just like, he was a Jew. And it's just like, between that and the thing that his wife says about how he doesn't want to go to the church because he'd have to be around black people. You know, I did get the sense that this character was, while he may be uncomfortable with the acts of violence he'd committed in the past, he felt to me like still an unrepentant racist and fascist. Yeah. Someone who benefited from the system, for sure. I just love that. Left-wing priests have destroyed the clergy. <laughs> like... Classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Left-wing MPs have destroyed Ilford. Uh, this is based on a best-selling novel which features a character based on a Nazi collaborator called Paul Tuvier, who was a member of Mies, a paramilitary police force of the Vichy French during World War II, who ordered the execution of seven Jews in 1944. So the murders that the film alludes to are actually real. After the war, he was convicted of treason and sentenced to death in Absentina, but with the aid of right-wing Catholic clergymen who provided him refuge in safe houses and monasteries, Tuvier escaped capture. He received a controversial pardon from the President of France, Georges Pompidou, in 1971. I don't know much about Pompidou, but I am guessing <laughs> he was, yeah, Not he a was a go- no, he was a Gaulist. Although, you know, Gaulists, the one thing that they did was they fought the Nazis. <laughs> like, in, <laughs> right? terms of, in terms of the French right, you'd think that the Gaulists would not be so forgiving. No, um, no, the only he, thing wrong with the Nazis was that they were German. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he remained on the run after Pompidou pardoned him. And this is all in the film, by the way. Tuvier was finally arrested in 1989 on a charge of crimes against humanity. And there's this bullshit stuff like all these right-wing priests in the film are like, I cannot give him up on this charge of crimes against humanity because it violates the laws of asylum. I'm just like, Re- <laughs> really? Would you say that about like an asylum seeker from Syria? Or just ones who yeah. killed seven Jews in 1944 as part of a right-wing paramilitary Nazi collaborator organization? But this guy was actually tried, convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But aside from that, everything else about him meant there on wikipedia is in the film so it's much truer hmm. to life film than i even realized i thought that the kind of subject matter was was based on stuff that really happened but no that seems very close to the story of that paul tuvier guy and that was it jewison retired yeah <laughs> oh and i was just gonna say something that may have had something to do with his retirement the film grossed a little over seven hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars domestically <laughs> from a 27 million dollar budget and it holds a rating of 24 percent on rotten tomatoes so another underrated jewison flick i thought <laughs> yeah the critics did not like his last few movies huh? oh dear dear me poor norman that was it he never worked again but uh, but hopefully career yeah hopefully it was as much a retirement of choice than a, a forced one yeah um, this picture of him from 2012 i guess it's eight years ago now but for a guy in his 80s he still looks pretty decent there you know looks looks healthy sure, yeah. <laughs> healthy well i guess he was healthy in that yeah picture if he's, he's still alive <laughs> eight years on at the age of 94 so yeah i think we were saying earlier when we were just chatting while i was eating dinner earlier jewison is such like the fact that he's not this like super distinct or even like super art housey kind of auteur it does mean that his films are for the most part very accessible and they're all really competent and the 
Yeah. Messages, you know, are usually pretty agreeable. It's just a safe pair of hands. Completely. Yeah. Competent filmmaker, like you said. I wasn't bored watching any of the films that I saw. And I feel like calling him a safe pair of hands, that kind of makes him sound a bit duller than he is, but he's not always a director who played it safe. Like, he was very willing to take risks, like, you know, yeah. make films that stuck a black man in a southern context as the heroic lead, to make films that, I think the Thomas Crown Affair is meant to feature, like, very innovative editing, to make films that are, like, long-ass films about, you know, Jews way back, you know, yeah. to make two musicals in a row, one yeah. about Jesus. When most of his films are not musicals. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Then an ambitious, cerebral sci-fi film, Rollerball, a film about trade union corruption featuring Sylvester Stallone in a dramatic role. I think he definitely didn't play it safe, actually. As, yeah, as a there's kind honestly of... a huge variety of subject matter, at least. It's all pitched at a kind of accessible, kind of middle-brow tone. But it's still, uh, nonetheless, a director who was prepared to put things on the line. And unfortunately, it seems like in his later years, he maybe put his reputation on the line a little. Mm. People weren't giving him the benefit of the doubt so much. But as I've said, I still think there's a lot to recommend about those films, about Hurricane, especially about the statement and about other people's money. The big difference between, say, someone in the Martin Scorsese vein of directing, you know what a Martin Scorsese film is like, right? You've got, there's exceptions, he made some different films here and there, but for the most part, Mm. you know, a lot of them are about gangsters, a lot of them are about crime, Mm. that kind of thing. Um, Catholicism. Yeah, Catholicism weighs heavily. But with a filmmaker like Norman Jewison, I just, I'm struggling to really point out any consistent themes other than maybe just a sort of liberal attitude, but that's about it. Yeah. Like you say, he pushed the envelope, but he didn't really, he never found like, this is my genre and I'm just going to do mostly these now or anything like that. No, I honestly think race is the closest thing to a recurring theme in his films and 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 he did it quite well. Be it his three films about the plight of black americans or fiddler on the roof yeah i agree with that statement yeah he'd kind of tried a bit of this a bit of that and i feel like he's the kind of director where a lot of different people will have seen one or more of his films without necessarily Mm. knowing they're by him yes totally (laughs) because a lot of them are famous you know in the heat of the night jesus christ superstar famous in their own way but mm. uh, moonstruck moonstruck with sure and nicholas cage is a, is a very well-liked film as i said but you won't necessarily think ah yes straight from the mind of genius director Norman <laughs> Jewison. <laughs> right yeah which may be a tad unfair to him yeah totally he deserves his credit i mean it's a storied career of many decades 62 to 2003 so directing for 40 yeah. odd years yeah, I've enjoyed revisiting, not just revisiting, kind of exploring Jewison's work and seeing some films that I have seen before in a new light and seeing some films I haven't seen before. Yeah, same here. Same here. And we should each watch a couple more and try to record a Patreon thing, catching up. The ones that you've seen or I haven't seen and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I guess that would like, mean I'll you... check out definitely the statement in the heat of the night moonstruck those are the three i want to check out yeah i'll re-watch moonstruck and i'll try and watch fiddler on my roof and and maybe i'll get in a soldier's story as well because that's his other like race drama yeah 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 that sounded interesting from the synopsis 
I also want to, at some point, I think we've recorded long enough for today, but at some point I need to, I, I decided, I knew it wasn't going to be good, but the reason I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is we decided to subject ourselves to that Ratchet series on Netflix. Oh, that's like, well, not a sequel. It's like they get a character from it and are like, let's, how, this is the yeah. origin story. Yeah, it's an origin story for Nurse Ratchet that makes Z row sense really? I, I, I hated it i hated it i hated it so much but i still watched every episode because i needed to know what the fuck they were doing what was going yeah. on and it didn't get better i'll save it for a separate recording but yeah <laughs> oh god i guess i don't know why you know how your phone may not do this but mine always shows me the algorithm tailors notifications to you like this person is doing this blah 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 so oh, it's like sure. you know for me it's always like bruce springsteen interview or whatever um <laughs> but for some reason like they were showing me like loads of fucking notifications about sarah paulson the actress from that <laughs> yeah. for ages and i've got nothing against sarah paulson <laughs> Paulson, but I had sure. to cancel. I had to like click. I'm not interested in stories about <laughs> Sarah Paulson because I've no idea what it was. Like I've not seen her in anything really. Right. Well, I've seen her in some films, but not as like I can't remember who she played in them. Or oh, yeah. I can remember her in Twelve Years a Slave as the horrible white. Oh woman, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> that's about it. But yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you're not man, a big it, fan of American Horror Story or anything, so yeah. I've never weird. seen it. <laughs> that's random. Very, very, yeah, I was getting all these stories about American Horror Story, and I've never seen it. So it's, yeah, it's very, very, very <laughs> advertising strange. push. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, specifically Sarah Paulson advertising push. Oh, it's, I've seen her in some <laughs> other stuff. Bug by William Friedkin is 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 a good fucked up film. Oh no, that's a different film called Bug. Oh well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. More to look yeah. forward to on Real Politic, guys. And people from Unbinary Size. Let's start that again. More to look forward to on Real Politic, everybody. Yeah. Hell yeah. All right, man. Speak to you later. Peace. Carmelita, hold me tighter. I think I'm sinking down. Now I'm all strung. Sitting here playing solitaire with my pearl handle deck. The county won't give me no more methadone, and they've cut off your welfare check. Carmelita, hold me tighter.
It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing. <laughs>